0: Hello my friends and welcome back. I'm Jared Halverson, this is Unshaken, and we've got some amazing material this week. But before we get there, can I give a shout out to some people I got to meet last weekend? Last weekend was the Restore Gathering that Faith Matters puts on. And Faith Matters is an organization that believes in the, in the parable of the gospel net, where you cast the net as far and wide as you can and you gather fish of every kind. Uh, it is an organization that tries to invite in people of other faiths and people at the fringes of our faith To help them see that there is a path to God from wherever they happen to be. That you can come unto Christ and come as you are, but don't leave as you were. Allow yourself to be changed, to be transformed by the gospel. Well, their conference over the weekend brought together about 3,000 people from across the country and even around the world who heard from speakers and incredible musicians and Uh, poetry readings and beautiful art it really was an amazing experience but for me i spoke there but to me the best part was meeting so many of you thank you for having the courage to just come up and introduce yourself and and it was amazing to just shake your hands and to give you a hug and to take selfies together and just rejoice in in our shared love of scripture uh, you you're strange as am i okay when most people don't spend this much time in in God's word but you do and and it's just an honor to know you i i learned from my wife the power of presence because when you, when you're with her no one else in the world exists she is fully present with you and you alone she's a total empath and and off the charts in terms of her social skills and emotional intelligence and and she's trying to help me along and it was just a sweet experience to meet you and to let the rest of the world disappear and just to know to hear your story and to feel of your faith and to sense your struggles over prodigals that you're worrying about. The rest of the world did cease to exist for a moment and you were all that I that I cared about and it was it was just The worth of souls is great in the sight of God. I've always felt that, but to feel that so up close and personal was was sweet. And honestly, I wish we had the time and the means or the venue or the opportunity to do that every single one because you are real and your concerns are and your questions matter and, and the story of life that you're living right now. You're not an extra in my movie. I'm an extra in yours. And... And I wish there were easier ways to just really connect and and go through the journey together. Anyway, thank you, those those I got to meet and those that I haven't yet been able to meet. I hope we get the chance someday. But moving forward, uh, we have the book of Hebrews this week and next week. And I'm thrilled we get two weeks, partly because this is one of my favorite books and I just want to extend it. But also, it cuts it in half so we can have shorter lessons. Last week was a marathon okay Uh, sorry not sorry but five and a half hours is a bit much but we had so much material four books first Timothy second Timothy Titus Philemon today we only have six chapters and they're fairly short so I can promise a shorter lesson this week than last week but last week deserved it honestly Uh, Timothy I mean to think of Paul running his leg of the relay and then passing the baton on to the next generation of church leaders yeah this is going to be some important material uh, to think of us hearing from him, perhaps for the last time. Because Second Timothy likely was his final letter. He may have been approaching the grave, martyrdom at that moment. And so to hear his last lecture, his the, the, the final message of a dying man, of course those are going to be some important things. Because we he might not get another chance to teach them. Or jump ahead to Philemon, a book we tend to skip over. Because it's always short. Can he really develop anything in that handful of verses? Or it feels so irrelevant because it's just about an escaped slave and he's going to come back, so please forgive him. Eh, That doesn't apply to us. Well, if you didn't get through all of last week's lesson, and I can't blame you, I would encourage you to at least go back and listen to our discussion of Philemon. The last 45 minutes or so. Because it's so relevant. I mean, Jesus is hiding there in plain sight. To me, it's one of the most beautiful types and shadows or analogies for what he did in the atonement. I mean, if you remember last year in the Old Testament when we studied Abigail and what an incredible type and shadow of Jesus she became, well, Paul's letter to Philemon, it's almost the male equivalent of that. As Paul becomes Jesus and Philemon becomes us and Onesimus becomes the person we're having a hard time forgiving. It's an amazing letter. So go back and study that. But let's move forward and dive into Hebrews. It is such an amazing book. In some ways, it doesn't fit in terms of its location in the canon. But it's there for a reason, so I'll explain it before we dive into the text itself. As we've seen before, the letters of Paul are organized in order of length, descending order. So, Romans was the longest, Philemon was the shortest, and would we'll just go in that order. Now, Hebrews is way longer than Philemon. If we're going in order, it's probably, it probably deserves to fit after Corinthians. But we, it was put at the end because there's a question mark as to its authorship. There are other letters of Paul that some scholars have wondered, did Paul, did Paul really write it? Uh, we're not totally sure. The language is a little bit different. Or the theological approach, he, he mentions other, other issues that are not, no, not common to his other letters. Now, for some of that, we could think, well, that, is that a problem? I mean, you can use different vocabulary at different times of life, right? That's, that's all right. Or will you bring up different topics for different audiences? Of course. So I have no problem crediting Paul for all the letters that we've studied this, to this point. Now, Hebrews is in, in that same group. And, and there really is a question here of did Paul write it or did somebody else who knew Paul and was part of Paul's close circle So it could be assumed to be Pauline as far as its influences. But because of its question marks, it's placed at the end of the letters of Paul and right before the letters of the other apostles, almost like this bridge book. Like, we're not totally sure. Could have been Paul, so we'll tack it on to his other letters, but we'll put it at the end. Because maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it was another apostle. Maybe it was part of the Pauline community whatever it might be. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, as was written by the author of the letter of Hebrews, or as the author of Hebrews once said. And sometimes we think, wow, is that just a fancy way of saying Paul? Giving him a longer title? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it was someone else. And it's like when we say, well, as the psalmist said. It's like, well, wasn't that King David? Well, for some of them, yes. For some of them, no. And so sometimes all we can say is the psalmist. Well, I'm not going to bog down the lesson unnecessarily by continually referring to the author of the book of Hebrews. We're going, for our purposes, let's just call it Paul for now, until we know for sure. Let's give him the credit, because it's definitely influenced by his writings, his theology. And again, it very well could have been Paul's fingerprints all over it and Paul's signature at the end. The challenge is we just don't have a signature. And unlike the other epistles of Paul... Those ones usually start with his name. He's telling you who's writing it from the very beginning, Paul. He then establishes his apostolic authority, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the will of God and not the will of man. We've seen that a lot. He'll then say something like to his audience, to the saints in Ephesus or in Corinth, to Timothy or to Titus, grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he launches off into his letter. Now, that is not how the book of Hebrews begins. There is no salutation, which has led some scholars to wonder who wrote this, but has also led other scholars to suggest perhaps it's just a different genre. And that might account for the different approach, the different theology, the different Greek words. I mean, if I'm speaking in public, I often use different words than if I'm writing in private. And if this is a sermon instead of a letter. Ah, that accounts for a lot of the differences that scholars find in the in the letter or in the in the sermon to the Hebrews. As a sermon, you're going to get theological. You're going to get doctrinal and you're going to get deep. As a sermon, this is going to be something he wants to be circulated through other from branch to branch from from congregation to congregation so that people can hear this sermon in absentia, that Paul couldn't give it live, but there he was from a distance present in spirit, though not in body read this at church and it's as if I'm there preaching to you now, to the Hebrews that's an odd title because that hasn't been used to describe these people for centuries I mean, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob I guess were Hebrews, but we became Israelites at some point and by now we're, we're Jews and so, Hebrews, what are you trying to say? Well, there may have been purpose there too. Let's get back to our original identity. Let's, dive, let, let's drill back down to our roots and see how we connect to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How we connect to Moses and Aaron. Uh, who are we really at core? If you remember when Paul would go on missions, every time he came to a new town, he would beeline it straight for the synagogue to preach to the Jews the fulfillment of all of their messianic hopes. You know the Old Testament. So let's go back to those Hebrew roots and see how they point us forward to Jesus of Nazareth. The Messiah has come. He lived, he died, he rose again. But it's his gospel, his new covenant that fulfills every promise in the old. Okay. So to you Hebrew saints, to any of you Jewish listeners, or to you Jewish converts to Christianity, I've got a sermon for you. I hope you'll see yourself here. But more importantly, I hope you'll see Jesus here as the fulfillment of every messianic hope you've ever had. Come unto him. You Gentile converts, you can listen in too. okay? But this is my letter, my sermon to the Hebrews to know who you are really and who Jesus is really as well. Okay. It's amazing. So dive in. Uh, we will see all kinds of Jewish influence as far as Old Testament scripture being brought in. Uh, temple, ritual, sacrifice, symbolism. There are some things here that we need to put our, our Jewish, our Old Testament uh, eyeglasses on. So that we can see through that lens. Let's, let's assume our, that we're part of that audience. Uh, channel, go, go read your patriarchal blessing. <laughs> Remind yourself what tribe you're a part of and then go all the way back from your tribe to, I, to Israel, a.k.a. Jacob, back to Isaac, back to Abraham. In fact, let's just go all the way back to the start. Let's begin with Adam and Eve and creation itself, shall we? Let's channel our Old Testament and now study this sermon in the New. Now, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, like I said, doesn't start with Paul. It starts with God. And it's an amazing beginning, this opening paragraph to the sermon. God, who hath sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Uh, welcome to church, brothers and sisters. Paul came to preach. <laughs> I mean, from the opening line. In fact, opening word. My Hebrew brothers and sisters, can we talk about God? The God we have been worshiping for millennia, by now? Let's speak of him. But actually, let's hear from him. How has he always communicated his will to us? To this point, it's been prophets. And that's going to perk up a Jewish ear. I mean, give me the Isaiah's and Jeremiah's and Ezekiel's of the world. Bring on a Hosea or a Joel or an Amos. That's always how God has communicated his will to his children through prophets. But now things have changed. I love this opening line of this sermon because Paul is saying, yeah, that's diverse manners and that's sundry times, but that's time past. Let's talk about time present. And how has God continued to manifest his love and communicate his will? Now it's through his own son. In these last days, things are different. To me, it's amazing to put Jesus in that perspective to take the place of every prophet who went before. This is kind of culmination, grand finale. In our day he sent his son. Do you remember the, the parable of the wicked husbandman that Jesus taught? I mean, brace yourself, this was a hard one for the Jews to hear. Because he, he explained this story of a master who owns the vineyard but is not physically present there at the vineyard. From a distance he has, he, he's still in charge of it but he has called stewards, they're not owners, they're just stewards, but will you run the vineyard for me? Well, to make sure they're doing it right and to keep in communication with them, he sends servants. And unfortunately, the wicked stewards, the wicked husbandmen, end up casting out, rejecting, ignoring all of those servants that were sent their way. Think about how the house of Israel throughout its history have treated their own prophets. I mean, you you pay them lip service. You're like, oh, prophets, that's our people. It's like, yeah, but your ancestors didn't listen to them very well. So in the parable, what does the master do next? The lord of the vineyard decides, well, if they rejected my servants, they will at least reverence my son. So I'll send my son. And tragically, they treated the son even worse than the servants. Not just casting him out, but killing him. And how's that for preview of coming attractions? That's exactly what happened to Jesus. And so Paul, bringing that idea back, you've been living this parable. And in the past, God spoke to you through prophets. But his channel of communication has changed. And now he speaks to us through his Son. Jesus came. He came and and has been communicating divine truth throughout his entire mortal ministry. I'm just trying to keep the good news spreading. Notice also how he ended it. Jesus... This son of God, he hasn't said the name yet, but the son who came was appointed heir of all things. He was the prince of peace, which means there is a king above him, but a king who is going to give all things as his inheritance. Think about what we learn in the book of Romans, that we are heirs of God by being joint heirs with Christ. It's only through Christ that any inheritance can come to us. So he's the heir of all things, by whom also he, God, made the worlds. And the fact that's a plural is interesting, too. He made the worlds, but he made them by his son. We're getting a sense of God as the architect and Jesus as the general contractor. Okay? It's all the architect's vision, but who does he send to actually accomplish the work? There's the contractors. And so he, God sent his son, not just to communicate truth to us, but it, it's the same son by whom the worlds themselves were created. Now, what I love about what Paul is doing here, again, to a Hebrew audience, is let's, let's go back to our fathers, the fathers uh, that, that God spoke to by means of prophets. Let's go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's go back to Adam and Enoch and Noah Yeah, let's go back to the beginning. In fact, in the beginning, even before he was speaking to the fathers through the prophets, God created the heavens and the earth. There's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? And how is Paul mentioning it here? The creation is right there in verse 2 of Hebrews. That it's through the Son that God created the world. Think about how John began his gospel in the beginning, which is the same way Genesis 1 begins. So he he knows his audience is going to be, Oh, I know where you're going with that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word is Jesus. He's the Word made flesh. He dwelt among us. And so John is getting his audience to think back to creation and Christ's role in it. If He's the Word, then when God spake and said, Let there be light, oh, He was sending the Word forth to make that all happen. Here, in a similar way, Paul is bringing these Hebrews right back to creation in the opening lines of this incredible sermon. And who created it all? The Son of God. Who's revealed it all? The Son of God. What do we know about this Son? Keep reading. Verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory. So think of Christ as the light of the world. We're back to creation on that one too, right? God said, there's the word, let there be light. Well, Christ is the light of the world. The brightness of the Father's glory. If you think back to the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John themselves had to be transfigured even to endure the glory of Christ as he manifests the glory of the Father, the brightness of his glory. Paul then adds, and the express image of his person. In a prior letter, Paul had called Jesus the image of the invisible God because from our mortal vantage point, we don't see the Father, but we've seen the Son. If you remember in one of the First Vision accounts, Joseph Smith said, the two were so identical, I couldn't tell them apart. Until one said to the other, this is my beloved son. And then, ah, okay, now I know who the Father is. But to see the express image of his person actually makes me think of Philip when he asks Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus is like, you've seen me, you've seen him. And while that's true, I take this language from Paul and Philip wasn't on the Mount of Transfiguration. He didn't see the brightness of his glory. So had he yet seen the express image of God's person? Uh, I don't know. To me, there's something powerful about recognizing in Jesus all we've been looking for in our search for God. Keep reading, and Paul keeps speaking of Jesus. Upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins. So there's a focus on the atonement. Okay, That atoning Savior sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now we're getting closer to Paul's opening argument. And the main focal point is establishing Jesus Christ as the Messiah to his Hebrew audience. To establish him as the Son of God, whom God sent to reveal himself to all of us. I saw him on the road to Damascus, Paul could say, and he blinded me. So prepare yourself for the express image and the brightness of God's glory through Jesus Christ. But who is he? He's the one that came to purge our sins. And from a a Hebrew perspective, from a Jewish vantage point, ooh, that's sacrifice. And we're going to see a lot of imagery in the book of Hebrews about those kinds of sacrificial offerings. Here from the very start, let's speak of Christ in his atonement role the Lamb of God. Also, though, as his inheritance, okay, we saw that in the the previous passage, and we can be joint heirs with him, but this idea of having obtained a more excellent name than they, who is the they? The angels. Jesus is so much better than the angels. If you think how God ministered to his children in the Old Testament, complete with angelic ministration, well, where does Jesus fit in all of this? According to verse 4, Jesus outranks the angels. Keep that in mind. And then Paul is going to develop that argument at greater length. Verse 5 through 7. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, that's a tricky passage if we don't understand what Paul is getting at. So let's unpack this. At the end of verse 4, he's establishing the fact that Jesus outranks the angels. Okay? In some ways, there's this thing called the great chain of being. And in the ancient days, people would try to figure out how do you rank everything in existence? What's the highest, and then all the way down to the lowest. Obviously, God is at the top. Humanity is somewhere beneath him. But like in Genesis when it said that humanity had dominion over the animals, so does the animal kingdom go beneath humanity? seems like it. Well, is there a ranking within the animal kingdom? Is there a king of beasts, so to speak? What about the plants? Are they underneath them? And is there a ranking there? Do we go down to the earth itself? Inanimate objects? Where, where do minerals fit? I mean, they're trying to create inventory of the whole universe, everything in existence, and then create this, my, this massive chain of being from, from greatest to least. Well, what Paul is doing is stepping into that conversation and saying, okay, God's up here, humanity's down below, where would you put, you put angels? Well, obviously angels are going to be somewhere in between God and, and, and humanity. Okay, great. Now, where would you put Jesus? Where would you put the Son of God? Because the the challenge for the the Jewish audience that Paul had in mind was, Jesus, he's he's not the Messiah. The Messianic age hasn't come. He came and, and left. He lived and died, and it's no different. We're still under the Roman thumb. Plus, I mean, he was born in a stable and laid in a manger and was a carpenter's kid and had to eat and drink and sleep like the rest of us. Now Jesus is on our level. And Paul's like, oh, not even close. If angels outrank you, Jesus outranks the angels. He is so far above any of us. Don't let his condescension trick you into assuming he's just like the rest of us. Jesus of Nazareth was no mere mortal. He he became like man almost, like we say in the hymn. But he was the son of God just as much as he was the son of man. You understand? And so what he's doing in this passage is he starts quoting all kinds of Old Testament scriptures. This is a, these are he, Hebrew hearers, after all. So when he says, unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son? He just quoted the second psalm. And his Jewish listeners are going to be like, oh, is that the psalm? Yeah, I know that verse. I know, chapter and verse, I got it down. And you're right. Who was he referring to? He never called the angels his sons or his daughters. So he's got to be referring to somebody else. Or the next passage, when it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, that's 2 Samuel. And again, we're turning to the Old Testament to differentiate between the angels of God and the Son of God. The Son of God's just different. He puts the angels in their place at the end of that passage when he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Again, that's how much lower than than the Son of God the angels are. And then when he says, Of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. That part's tricky. It actually requires a little clarification from the JST, which rephrases it this way. And let all the angels of God worship him who maketh his ministers as a flame of fire. And of the angels he saith, angels are ministering spirits. I mean, that's all you are, okay? Angels, yeah, you're ministers, but you're not masters. The master himself, that's the son of God. These ministers may be, these angels may be flames of fire or like flames of fire, but Christ, oh, there's the fire of God himself. There's the brightness of God's glory. He's the one that ignited those angels to begin with, okay? So keep them straight on the chain of being. Christ far surpasses them. You see, part of the challenge, and we actually saw this in Paul's letter to the Colossians, there were some people who looked at angels in such awe that there was almost a sense of worshiping angels. Remember this phrase from Colossians chapter 2, verse 18? Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. The voluntary humility is some form of asceticism that's not being asked of you. So don't get beguiled by being pulled in that direction. And certainly don't be beguiled by being pulled in the direction of some kind of worship of angels. Yeah, angels outrank you, but not to the level of worshiping them. Who is worthy of that worship? The Father is. And so is the Son. That's the point that Paul has been trying to make this whole time. The So far, I mean, we're, what, seven verses in, and we've already established that the Son of God outranks the prophets. That's how God used to communicate to us. He's upped his game. <laughs> He's speaking through his Son now. And the Son far surpasses the, the, the angels as well. Okay? We're trying to put Jesus in his proper place. Paul then says in verse 8, But unto the Son... So compared to what he said about the angels in those previous verses he quoted, Unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above his fellows. And all of that is straight out of Psalm 45. So again, Paul is dipping into his Old Testament basket and bringing out these, these treasures that speak of a coming Messiah. These messianic prophecies, his Hebrew hearers would be hanging on every word. And he's saying, he's come. Okay. The son is the one who deserves that throne and that scepter. It's his kingdom. Think about all the regal words that were just referenced. About about being anointed. Yes, kings are anointed. So are priests. And so this anointed one is king and priest. He's king of kings, lord of lords. Oh, and anointed one? How do you say that in Hebrew? Messiah. How do you say that in Greek? Christ. Do you understand who has come among us? The one who was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. So yes, superiority there of the Savior. Far outranks the rest of us. But the oil of gladness, think about Gethsemane, it means olive press. There was oil pressed out of those olives. There was grace squeezed out of every pore of Jesus. And to see this I mean, he called it a bitter cup. Imagine what that oil must have felt like in producing it. And yet, what is its effect? It's an oil of gladness. It's the grace of God. In verse 10, And thou, Lord, in the beginning... Ooh, there's that phrase. Does that ring any bells? In the beginning... Ooh, that's how Genesis 1 started. That's how John 1 started. We're back to creation. Sure enough, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of Thine hands. That's Paul's equivalent of Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's all right there. But what's amazing here is he's saying, not even creation can hold a candle to its creator. Jesus outranks the prophets. He outranks the angels. He out-awes and out-inspires the glory of creation itself. After all, Paul says, they, the heavens and the earth, shall perish, but thou remainest. They all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. I mean, it's like, oh, heavens and earth? Oh, that was so like last season. Oh no, get get up to get up to speed. What's the new style? <laughs> like a like a piece of old clothing? Let's just fold it up and pack it away, because I'm not gonna wear that for a while. No, compared to the earth itself, Jesus is far more permanent. Jesus is the same. His years shall not fail. That's another quote from the psalmist, by the way. Psalm 102. But think about how the Lord opened this dispensation. In section 1 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the preface, he says, Though the heavens and the earth shall pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled. It's like you can bank on me. I'm not going anywhere. I will be here for the duration. It's amazing to think that even after the sun at the center of our solar system goes out, the brightness of God's glory will still be shining through Jesus Christ. He has been here from the beginning. He will be here through the end. I mean, we think of the earth as a pretty permanent thing. You look at the Grand Canyon and you're like, wow, that's, that's permanent and yet Jesus is like oh no i remember when the colorado river was just a little rivulet and what you call the grand canyon was just a little dent in the soil to think of christ unfailing will always be there we can place our utmost faith in him so paul tells us in verse 13 But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? That's Psalm 110 verse 1, by the way. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Again, that's all the angels are. As amazing as they might be, they're simply ministering spirits. And they are supposed to minister to those who are joint heirs with Christ. But it's Christ who is the ultimate heir of God. Please keep that in mind. Everything Paul has taught us in this first chapter of Hebrews, from start to finish, is to establish the superiority of the Savior. Jesus Christ is second only to God himself in this great chain of being. So anything else you've been looking up to, look past it, and you'll see the Savior above it all. Now in chapter 2, he's going to make it clear, I understand why this is sometimes difficult to understand. Because Jesus did such a convincing job in the condescension to fit in among us, to be just like mortal man. Oh, there were glimpses of his glory. But it's amazing how willing to humble himself he was. Remember what Paul had taught to the Philippians, that this mind that was in Jesus, that needs to exist in us as well, he wasn't holding on to his divinity he was willing to pour it all out and make himself of no reputation. So to you Hebrews, you Jews out there that still don't see Jesus for who he is, maybe we need to pour some more of that glory back in. Maybe you need to see the the express image and the bright glory and come to terms with who Christ really is. For that, go on, go on in chapter 2. And in verse 1, he says, Therefore, and that's a horrible way to start a chapter, but it's an amazing way to continue a sermon. Therefore is a conjunction. It connects what went before to what's now coming after. It's a sense of because of that, or consequently, or as a result. Therefore, because of everything I've just said about Jesus, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard lest at any time we should let them slip. And slip is such an interesting word. The Greek there could also simply mean drift away. And to me, I get this idea of God giving us his word and uh, take it or leave it. No big deal. We don't hold on to it so tightly. We let it slip through our fingers. We let it drift away because it doesn't seem that valuable, that important to us. I remember once as a kid, we were out boating at Lake Tahoe. My grandpa had a boat, and we'd go water ski. And, and one day we woke up, we went out to go find the boat, and it was gone. It, was, it, we, it had been tied to the buoy the night before, and there's no boat. And we're like, did, somebody stole the boat? Who do we alert? Well, eventually the boat was found floating by itself in the middle of Lake Tahoe. And what had happened is the knot had come undone. And the boat had just drifted away. The wind had blown it out into the middle of the lake and thank heaven we were able to find the thing. How tightly have you tied yourself to God's word? Or is it something like, ah, take it or leave it. And if it floats away, if it drifts off, no big deal. Well, what if you're in the boat and you're the one drifting off? Christ is the fixed buoy. There's no... There's no pulling him away from bedrock. He is anchored. But are we anchored in him? Or do we take his word for granted, thinking it doesn't matter, willing to let it slip? That's another way to, to see it too, of letting something slip through your fingers because you didn't think it was worth holding on to very tight. C.S. Lewis gave a great analogy about rope. Rope and said, how much faith do you have in the rope? Well, it depends on what you're using it for. If it's just there to tie up a a package, then eh, take it or leave it. It doesn't really matter. But if you're hanging by that rope, then you better hope it holds. Well, do you see now why we need to hang on every word that comes from the mouth of God? Because we are hanging by that word ourselves. It's the only thing holding us up. So give it earnest heed, rapt attention, determination to follow every phrase the Lord gives us. What Paul says next, For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and remember, Christ far outranks the angels, but even angelic testimony, if that's steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompensive reward, whoa! then how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him think about that in fact to a Hebrew audience I wonder they went back to Genesis already are, now they, are they in Exodus now because in the book of Exodus God is leading the Israelites toward the promised land but after the golden calf experience the Lord says no, I, can't, I can't lead you you won't follow So instead of God going before you, I will send angels to lead you home instead. And talk about taking things down a notch. Talk about dropping down the chain of being. But at least you'll have angels to show you the way. And an angel's word is steadfast. You can bank on it. In fact, I'm banking on it. I will judge you by it, is what he hints at here. It was confirmed unto you from the very start. God was in the lead. You ended up having to settle for angels instead. Well, God's given you a second chance 1,200 years after. And he sent his son to speak to you. He replaced angels with the son of God. And if angels' words are steadfast, then the son's words are even more bedrock in terms of how, how firm and steadfast they will be. But also to judge you for how firm or not so firm you've been in following them. So don't let them slip. Do not neglect so great salvation. I mean, that would be criminal negligence. If God is offering you so great salvation made manifest in the ministry of his son, and we let it slip, we neglect it as if it was of no worth. Oh, it's worth everything. In fact, God has made that crystal clear. Verse 4. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. No, it wasn't to the angels. It was to Christ that everything was put in subjection. God trusts Jesus with everything, even eternity itself. And what proof has he given us of that trust? Well, he just gave us quite the list. Signs, Wonders, miracles, gifts, all of that should be convincing evidence that Jesus Christ is everything we tell you he is. In verse 6, Paul says, But one in a certain place testified, and here he's going to quote the eighth psalm, He says it so nonchalantly. Oh yeah, there was, I can't remember, there was one guy somewhere, I don't remember. He said something along these lines. Now again, the Hebrew audience, the Jewish audience, in some ways Paul is giving them a chance to feel smart. Because they're going to know exactly who said it and where. Because here, as Paul quotes the 8th Psalm, they're all going to go, oh, I know this one. So, one in a certain place, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, testified saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. There's the chain of being again. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and it set him over the works of thy hands. That's humanity's dominion over the animal kingdom. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Again, a little confusing. But what Paul is saying there is think about where humanity is on the chain. Have been, everything's supposed to be under their feet. They're supposed to have dominion over the rest of creation. And yet they're not quite there yet. That's what he said at the end there. We see not yet all things put under him. But they'll get there. They're going to need some help. They're going to need some divine grace. They still need to grow up in God if they ever hope to be above the things that the Lord has placed them over. For us to be worthy of the responsibility as joint heirs with Christ, well, we're going to have to come unto Christ in the first place. He's the one who truly puts things, all things, under his feet. Okay, so where's man? What is man? Why would you even care about us? That's the shocker of the eighth psalm. You would be mindful of me? I'm nothing. This is like what Enoch was grappling with when it's like, God, why are you weeping? So we're a wicked earth. Just kind of flick us off into non-existence. You're still God. And God says to him, basically, you still don't get it, do you, Enoch? It's not about me. It never has been. It's about you. You're everything to me. In fact, to pull it back into New Testament context, why do you think I sent my only begotten son? He's the one that will truly overcome all things and help you rise in the process. In verse 9, But we see Jesus. And amazingly, that's the first time Paul drops that name. We've been talking about him since the very first verse of Hebrews. But we are now halfway through the second chapter and we finally see by name who he's been talking about the whole time. To this point, it's been the Son and the Son, and the Son, but who is that Son? He's Jesus. We saw Genesis with creation. We saw Exodus with, you're going to have to have an angel guiding you since you're not worthy of God's presence instead. I guess now we're in Joshua, because Joshua is Jesus as far as his name is concerned. Who's actually going to get you into the promised land? Who is going to return you to God's presence? It's going to be Joshua. It's going to be Jesus. He's the one we've been looking at all along. But now we finally see him. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, wait a minute. I thought you said he outranked the angels. Well, he does. But his mortal ministry, his condescension brought him down to our level. And we're lower than the angels. So for Christ to be made like us, yes, a little lower than the angels. And why did he do it? Why did he have to come down to that level? Paul's answer, for the suffering of death. But that's what crowned him with glory and honor. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. How's that for the bitter cup? For it became him, or in other words, it was right, it was fitting. It became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect. Through sufferings. Now, this is a beautiful, beautiful passage. It's the condescension of Christ. And remember, con is with, descend is come down. So Jesus came down to be with us, but not just with us, to be like us. That's where compassion comes in, fellow suffering. That's where empathy, feeling within. Jesus did all of that. He who infinitely outranks the angels came down to be a little lower than the angels, just like us. Why? So he could suffer death. So he could taste it and know what it tastes like. That he could internalize our own imperfections. That he could feel what it feels like to be weak. Again, perfect empathy as a gift to Christ in Gethsemane and on Calvary. He is the captain of our salvation, but what allowed him to be perfect was his perfect comprehension, his perfect compassion, his perfect empathy, where he finally fully understood. The word captain there, by the way, could be translated in so many different ways. It could It's some kind of leader. Sometimes it's translated as prince. Sometimes it's translated as pioneer. That's interesting. It's someone who's going before you blazing the trail. And to think of Jesus as the captain of our salvation. He's going to lead the way. He's going to open the path for us to be saved ourselves. Author is another way it's translated. Later in Hebrews when he's called the author and finisher of our faith. It's the same Greek word. So Christ as the author. Christ as the finisher. Christ as the forerunner. Christ as the pioneer. He's opening the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he will bring us all to salvation. That's why he came. And he never considered himself perfect at it until he perfectly understood each one of us. That's amazing to me. Remember when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Be be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And it wasn't until 3 Nephi, when he rephrased that, be therefore perfect, even as I and your Father in Heaven is perfect, what was keeping him from claiming perfection? He never sinned through it all. It's like, oh no, I I didn't sin. But it wasn't flawlessness I was talking about in that term, perfection. Remember, the word is more fully developed and you've reached the goal. You've grown up in God. You are now mature. Well, what had changed in Jesus... Between the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon at the Temple in 3 Nephi. His atonement. His crucifixion. His resurrection. What he did to become perfectly understanding of our mortal experience. That's what's so profound about this. He tasted death for us. No wonder he had to lower himself to our lowly level. So then verse 11 For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, and here he quotes the 22nd Psalm, which Jesus made so famous when he quoted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the bad news of Psalm 22. Here's the good news. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. My brethren. That's how he refers to us. Can you believe that? In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, and here he's going to quote Isaiah 12, I will put my trust in him. And again, and here he's quoting Isaiah 8, Behold I and the children which God hath given me. I mean, the book of Hebrews is chock full of Old Testament references. And unless we know our Old Testament inside and out, we don't even see that he's alluding to things. We just think he's teaching. No, no, he's quoting left and right. But a Jewish audience, Hebrew hearers, are ooh ooh ooh, and they're just recognizing verse after verse from their beloved scripture. Wait a minute, what are you what are you doing with all these passages, Paul? He's like, oh, do you not see? I'm bringing them all together and helping you see what they're all talking about. They're speaking of Jesus. He's come to fulfill this all. But what he's saying in these passages, the scriptures call us his brethren. Or quoting Isaiah children that God hath given me. I mean, in Isaiah's original context, he's talking about his literal children. And God has given me those children to be signs and and examples, right? Object lessons in in what I'm trying to teach. I love what Paul does with Scripture because now he's using it to a different purpose and says, yeah, Isaiah had literal children. But think about the children that God gave to Christ when we are spiritually adopted sons and daughters unto him begotten christ becomes the father of our covenant the church is the mother okay christ provides and presides and protects he is that father figure in our faith and we belong to him wow you see by doing this this is all to back up what paul said at the beginning of that of those verses he that sanctifieth so the sanctifier the one that is so holy that his holiness spreads to us. He's the contagious one, not us. right? The leper comes. I can't touch you. Jesus says, oh, I can touch you. The woman with the issue of blood. I don't want to touch you. And Jesus is like, you're not going to contaminate me. Okay? I'm the sanctifier. And any contact with Christ causes sanctification to flow from high concentration, that's him, to low concentration. That's us. Okay? Again, if he's above us, that living water flows downhill. And who's at the bottom of the hill? We are. But to think of him that sanctifieth, Jesus, and we who are sanctified, we're all of one. Think about that. That is an incredible amount of inclusivity on Christ's part. Not thinking, again, it flows downhill, but then he says, oh, let's just stay on the same level, shall we? Let's all be one. And it's not high concentration, low concentration. It's not above and below. No, I came down below all things so I could completely understand the situations you find yourselves in. That's my condescension. And in fact, as a result of that, because of that cause, I'm not ashamed to call you brethren. No wonder I adopted you. I I want you as part of my family. Now, have you, let's flip it around. Have you ever been with someone... I hope not, but have you ever been with someone that makes you feel less than you are? Because it feels like that person is ashamed to be seen with you. I remember back in the old days when uh, my kids were little and sometimes we would take them to Baskin Robbins on family night and they were so excited. We're getting ice cream and we're with mom and dad and being seen with mom and dad was like a badge of honor when they're little. But go to a Baskin-Robbins on a Monday night and look at families that might be there for family home evening treats. And yes, you'll see little children thrilled to be there with mom and dad. But you'll probably see a teenager or two that's kind of off on the periphery. Uh, She comes up to the counter to make their order so that mom and dad still pay for it. But then they kind of go somewhere else uh, to eat their ice cream because they don't want to be seen with their family. I'm too cool for that. That's rough. Imagine if you're an unpopular kid and you've got a popular friend. At least you were friends before they became popular. And when it's just the two of you, yeah, you are, you are t- as tight as you ever were before. But when they're in public, they change. And they, you can tell they're ashamed of your companionship. They were fine what they became popular, but you didn't. And there's that disconnect when other people are looking on. You want to talk about somebody who became cool when we didn't? Look at Jesus. You want to talk about someone who infinitely outranks the angels and yet was willing to come down lower than the angels so he would know what death tastes like. So he would know what the flavor of sin and suffering but having done that and come to know us with such perfect understanding and empathy, all that's left is love to the point he is not ashamed to call us his brethren I'm amazed at his condescension that seen in public I'm kind of hiding behind him because I don't want anybody to see me I'm not worthy to be in his presence. And yet he always coaxes me out of the shadows, brings me into the middle of the circle and starts to introduce me to all of his friends. Like, oh, you got to meet Jared, a good friend of mine. And I want him to be a friend of yours. If you've had people in your lives that have done that for you literally, think of how grateful you are. Jesus did that for us on an eternal scale. Absolutely breathtaking. Paul then says in verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, and remember, children is how he referred to us in the previous verse, right? Look at all these children God has given me. Well, Christ not only adopted the children, he became a child himself. You see, children are partakers of flesh and blood. And what had Christ done? Son of God becoming son of Mary, taking on flesh and blood, word made flesh? That's what Paul is suggesting here. He, Christ, also himself likewise took part of the same. He became just like us. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Or as other translations render it, through all their life were held in slavery by their fear of death. And that's us. As mere mortals, we are at risk every moment. You remember there was that verse in 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection central chapter? And that was one of the things he said, that if there's no resurrection, then we're at peril every hour. We're always walking on eggshells because we can't afford to risk it. We've got two strikes already. And the third one, we're out. There's no wiggle room. And if this life is the only life I get, oh, I am scared of death. The whole time. What's he saying here? Our whole lifetime we were subject to bondage. We were enslaved by our own fear. And yet perfect love casteth out all fear. And perfect love is Jesus. He loved us enough to lay down his life. To conquer death and show us there's nothing to be afraid of. No wonder he could say to Joseph Smith so early in the Doctrine and Covenants. Don't be afraid, Joseph. They can't do anything to you. They haven't already done to me. And then you picture Joseph like, huh? Is that supposed to make me feel better? They killed you. And again, Jesus would say, yeah, and, and here I am. Death is so temporary. That's why I usually refer to it as sleep. Don't worry about falling asleep. I'll wake you up. Okay. And so to conquer death and thereby conquer the, the fear of death that we all struggle with, This is resurrection born of condescension. He came down in order to die. But in dying, he conquered death for the rest of us. And then Paul says in verse 16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. And yes, you Hebrews, that's who you are. Notice what he's saying there. It would have been bad enough for Jesus to have to lower himself to the level of angels, to take on their nature I mean, that's a huge drop in the chain of being. A major condescension. But for Jesus, no, nah, that's going low, but not low enough. Humanity would still be out of reach of my divinity. So I'm going to pour the whole thing out. I'm going to lower myself to the level of Abraham's seed. And by so doing... Well, think about it this way. Yes, when I'm on earth, I'll walk on water. But that's the exception to the rule. Instead of walking above it and merely splashing around in the human experience, I'm going to dive all the way in. I'm going to swim to the depths. I'm going to sink to the bottom. So I can understand and lift anyone who feels like they're drowning. That's the condescension of Christ. That was his willingness to take on himself the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, Paul says, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. That's the result of his perfect empathy. That's what comes of his perfect understanding. I get it. You see why he had to come down to our level? You see why he would say to Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? Because Joseph wasn't feeling greater, but he was feeling forsaken. He was feeling left alone and wondering, Where art thou? I keep looking up, and you're nowhere near. To which Jesus could say, then look down. And please recognize the fact that I'm still below you. I've gone through worse things so I could understand you, so I could lift you from below and and bring you back to heaven. There's something so beautifully moving about this likeness on his part. Paul has repeated it several times in chapter 2. Honestly, Hebrews 2 is amazing. Because if Hebrews 1 is the ascension of Christ, superiority to every other thing, then chapter 2 is the condescension of Christ, to put him at the opposite extreme. He who was above all things now has descended below all things, so he could bear all things up, including you and me. We're his brethren, and he's not ashamed of that. He gets... Remember the hymn that we sing in, at Christmas time? He knows our needs to our weakness. He's no stranger. He understands it so perfectly, so he can perfectly assist us. I love the end there. Why would he have to suffer temptation? I mean, he never succumbed to it. Well, he had to know what it feels like, though, so he could help us navigate the same path that we do succumb to. There's another great C.S. Lewis statement about this one where he says, sometimes people say, oh, Jesus didn't completely understand the human experience. I mean, he's the son of God too. Or he didn't really understand how difficult it could be to overcome sin because he never sinned. And Lewis's great insight there was, how dare you say that of Jesus? You're the one that doesn't understand the strength of sin because you gave into it. It was only Jesus who, who never did the only one who knows the full force of the wind is the one that can stand up against every element instead of getting blown, blown away by it. you understand that thought? To me, there's something so profound and so powerful about I understand what you're going through. Because of his condescension and his atonement, Christ has removed from us the possibility of ever shaking our fist toward heaven and saying, you don't know what I'm going through, or you don't know what I feel. He felt it all. You remember that beautiful phrase in Alma chapter 7, verse 11 and 12? And he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind And he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy, according to the flesh. That he may know, according to the flesh, how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Alma 7 is Alma's version of what we just read here in Hebrews 2. And to think of Christ taking upon him, that's the language. It's not just, okay, I'll accept it because the Father is forcing me. No, he took it. He accepted that role. Here am I, send me. He volunteered. But in taking upon himself death, that's what Paul said earlier about tasting death for every man so he could conquer it and overcome our fear. But it was more than death that he took upon himself. When he speaks of infirmities, why our weakness so he would understand just how hard it is for us to resist the temptation that Jesus was strong enough to turn away from every time to know according to the flesh it wasn't just cognitive up in his head it was experiential in his flesh and in his blood no wonder we partake of that flesh and that blood It's the part that understands us best. He internalized us. He partook of our flesh and blood. And now we are partaking of His. He understands us. He can heal us. He can forgive us. He wants to succor us. That's the word that Paul uses and the word that Alma uses. And to succor means to run to. I will run in your direction. And from where He stands... It's a run uphill. He lowered himself beneath us in order to bear us up. I don't know of better places than what we've been studying here and in the Book of Mormon to convey the condescension of Christ. When the angel asks Nephi, do you understand that condescension? What was his humble answer? "Ah, I do not know the meaning of all things. But he did say one thing he did know. And that's smart for any student that doesn't know the answer on the, on the test. <laughs> you don't know the answer, give an answer that you do know. And Nephi's answer was brilliant. He said, I know that he loveth his children. Well, I thought you said you didn't understand condescension. I don't. That's a big word. It's not, you, you just explained it perfectly. He loves his children. To the point of becoming a child himself. Growing up alongside us. To help us all grow up in god hebrews 2 is an absolute masterpiece okay anytime you're feeling like god is out of reach look to hebrews 2 and then look down and you'll find the savior waiting to lift you well if you believe that is and that's the message of chapter 3 I've taught you ascension in chapter 1 and condescension in chapter 2. Chapter 3, the question remains, how will you respond to it? Will you let these words slip? Will you drift away or let those truths drift away? Or will you pay the more earnest heed and hold on to everyone? Chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, another conjunction. Horrible way to start a chapter. Great way to continue a sermon. Wherefore, as a result of everything we've just said about Jesus, holy brethren, and it's Christ who makes you holy. It's Christ that makes us brethren of each other and brothers and sisters of him. Partakers of the heavenly calling. And remember, it's his calling to give, but he gives it to us. He allows us to partake alongside him. Well, my holy brethren, my fellow partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Got to bring in Moses. I already brought in Abraham. I brought in Adam and Eve, really. I've brought in the, the fathers and the prophets. But can we bring in Moses here? Because if Moses was faithful, to the divine calling God gave him. And it was a calling to free God's people from bondage and bring them to the promised land. Oh, there's a prophet like unto Moses who has been walking among us. One who far surpasses Moses, in fact. But one who was equally faithful. In fact, <laughs> much more faithful than Moses ever could be. But he's the one who brings us out of bondage and into the promised land too. That is, if we follow him. So what am I asking you to do here at the beginning of chapter 3? Just consider. Now the Greek word for consider there could mean to take note of, to observe carefully, to keep your eyes wide open. Right? We're, we're tightening, our, tightening our grip on that rope. Don't let it slip. But keep your eyes, if your hands are closed, keep your eyes wide open. And consider, what are you looking at? Do you see the apostle and high priest of our profession? Do you see this prophet like unto Moses who far surpasses Moses in every way? Who he's, Jesus who is both Moses and Joshua all rolled into one? Get, it, get us out of Egypt. Bring us in to the promised land. You see, verse 3, for this man, Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Far more. Superior to someone sacred to Judaism. Jesus should be eternally, infinitely more sacred than that. In so much as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. We're back to general contractors and architects now, right? And as amazing as the building is, that was just the brainchild of someone who pictured it in the mind before they built it on the ground. This is spiritual creation preceding physical creation. And who's the creator behind all things? Again, we're trying to, Paul is trying to help us picture Jesus here. He's trying to help us consider who he really is and what he's really like. And again, look at the earth. In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? Think about Jesus. And if you have seen, oh, the least of these, you have seen God moving in his majesty and power. That's d 88. If you've seen the heavens, then the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. You look at an amazing piece of art, and whether or not you can see the signature that's often hidden there, you are seeing the handiwork of the master behind the masterpiece. I love the San Diego Temple. I love every temple. But the San Diego Temple is breathtaking to me. Partly because not only do I know the building, I know the builder. The architect, that is. And my dad's uncle, who designed the San Diego Temple, he walked us through the temple for the open house. And he pointed out things that I don't think were on any other tour. Because he would let us know, this is why I did that. And pay attention to this detail. And look for the light. And consider these things. And so as we're considering Christ... But you want to consider Moses because that's what you're used to? Fine, start there. But then put it up a notch or infinity. Look at the building, but recognize the builder behind it all. Because that builder is Jesus himself. In verse 5, For Moses verily was faithful in all his house, as a servant. He was willing to lower himself just like Jesus was. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, oh, let's take it up a notch. Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now, that's a big if, right? If we'll do that, if we'll hold on, if we don't let it slip, if we don't neglect the kinds of things that God has promised us, then we can hold on to confidence. We can hold on to rejoicing. We can hold on to hope because that hope is firm. We just have to be firm in the hope and be firm unto the very end. Do we have that kind of faith in Christ who lowered himself to understand us and then lifts us up to his level? Keep a firm grip on that hope too. Verse 7, wherefore, so consequently, as a result, as the Holy Ghost saith, and here he's going to quote the 95th Psalm. But I love that he gives the credit to the spirit instead of the psalmist. Okay? Again, he's, in some ways he's playing intellectual hard to get. And he's not spelling it all out. He's just dropping hints. But he knows that the people are going to pick up on those hints and start filling in the blanks themselves. It's a beautiful way to let them be their own teachers. So I'm not going to tell you chapter and verse. I'm going to quote it and let you fill in the blank. I'm going to give the Holy Ghost credit and you're going to go, oh, that's the psalmist. Ooh, the spirit was the one speaking through the psalmist. You better believe it. By the way, the fact that Paul keeps going to the psalms, yes, he's quoted Samuel. Yes, he's quoted Isaiah. But the psalms is Israel's hymn book. And we seem to remember primary songs better than any primary teaching. We, music brings things back to memory. And so I love that Paul keeps quoting the hymn book to help the people sing about their Savior. And here's part of the song. Today, if we will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. As in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart. And they have not known my ways, so I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. What that hymn just reviewed was Israelite history, the Exodus. Remember, we've been spending time in Genesis and Exodus and the journey toward the promised land through under Joshua and Moses. And so, again, let's sing of this from our ancient hymn book and talk about the book of Numbers. Talk about their wilderness wanderings. In What do they call it? The provocation? That's such a scary description. We call it the Exodus. The Lord calls it the provocation. (laughs) We call it the wilderness wanderings and Jesus Oh, those were the wilderness frustrations because you kept provoking me. It's as if you were tempting me and trying to test and prove me when I had been proven you were the ones that were the question marks and yet your constant murmuring your golden calf experience your wonder wander die wander die as you provoked me not to anger but to justice at the expense of the mercy I kept extending your way the provocation that's strong but because they provoked and did not repent, they could not enter God's rest. This goes back to Acts chapter 7, where Phil, uh, excuse me, Stephen is teaching this amazing Old Testament history lesson and letting his audience know this is why you missed Jesus, because you've always been missing Jesus. You missed him in Moses' day. You missed him in Abraham's day. You missed him in your own day. We can't afford to miss him. We can't afford to let it slip, or we will miss out on the rest of God. There's a beautiful passage in Doctrine and Covenants 84 that defines that rest in powerful ways. This is D&C 84 verse 24 and it's talking about the provocation again. It says, But they hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. Therefore the Lord in his wrath for his anger was kindled against them swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness. So that's exactly what they've been singing about from the 95th Psalm. But then this phrase of clarification. Having just mentioned his rest, the Lord then says, which rest is the fullness of his glory. That's what I was trying to give you. Glory. I didn't want Moses to be lonely on Mount Sinai. I wanted you all to climb the mountain right alongside him. I wanted that mount of commandment to be a mount of transfiguration. I wanted you to see the express image of the Father and the brightness of his glory. But you wouldn't come. So instead, I had to send angels. I had to take you down the chain of being and send angels to take my place. To send you a Moses instead of me, or a Joshua instead of me, even though those two were constantly trying to point you back to me. You couldn't enter my rest. So you had to wander. Will you, will we, Be willing and worthy to enter the rest of God into the fullness of his glory. It's the best description of the Sabbath day of rest I I can think of. It's not a day for naps, necessarily. It's a day for the fullness of God's glory. I can finally see Christ for who he really is. Enter in. Don't provoke him. Then verse 12, take heed, brethren. He's been calling our attention and giving us these kind of forceful invitations left and right. Don't let it slip. Give the more earnest heed. Consider these things. Hold fast. And here, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Notice, by the way, that unbelief is a problem of the heart, not of the head. Too often people will come to me because of head questions. And they want to talk about the logic of something. something, Explain something in church history. And I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to spend time in their head. But the real issue lies in the heart. And if there is unbelief that has crept into that inner attitude, then we've, we've got some changes to make. So overcome this evil heart of unbelief that was manifest in departing from the living God. I mean, think about that. Why would you abandon him? who has never abandoned you, why would you wander off and die when he's trying to lead you to the promised land? Why would you replace the Lamb of God with a golden calf? Come on, Israel. So don't depart from the living God. Instead, he says, exhort one another daily. It'll take that kind of frequent repetition. In fact, do it right now. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And that's such a great description of it. Nothing is so slippery as sin. Nothing is so deceptive as transgression. And so to overcome that trickiness, that, that deceit today, right now, you've got to change. You've got to open your eyes. You've got to take heed. You've got to consider. I'm exhorting you to. For as Paul said by way of exhortation, we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. And yes, that's another big if. Earlier, it was if we hold fast to the confidence he's given us, to the rejoicing, to the hope that he holds out. Here, similar. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. Just got to, remind you I'm quoting scripture here but think about what he just said to be a partaker of Christ remember he partook of death so we could partake of life he partook of our fallen nature so we could partake of his divine nature talk about role reversal that's what atonement's all about but if what does it take to partake of Christ it's to hold on to the promise it's to keep the faith. It's to keep a tight grip and never let slip through your fingers the confidence that you once had in Christ and the faith you need to keep holding on to whatever lies in your future. I love the description there. The beginning of our confidence. When, when did that come? Well, think pre mortality. Whom shall I send was a question fraught with risk because agency is what allows that risk to exist. But we had confidence. In fact, we had so much confidence that we fought to preserve the risk because we knew the reward that would come from Christ. Are we still that confident? Or think about mortal confidence. It was our confidence that won the war in heaven, our confidence that convinced us to come to earth. Our confidence, oh, I hope you felt it when you were little and you prayed and you knew God was going to come through for you. You lost that toy and you knew that God could show you where it was. I sometimes worry that I've lost a step or two since my childhood when it comes to my childlike faith. I had all the confidence in the world that Christ would come through for me. Am I continuing with that confidence now? The beginning of my confidence. Hold on to it. Whenever your faith was first awakened, go back to those moments. Remember them. Hold them fast. Consider. Take heed. I'm exhorting you daily and start to do it today. And then verse 16 through 19. He ends this chapter by saying, For some, when they had heard, did provoke Oh, I guess we're still back in the wilderness, wander, wander, die. So, some provoked. How be it not all that came out of Egypt by Moses? Now, the New International Version rephrases that whole passage as a question. And I like the way it's phrased. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Who's doing the provoking here? And his answer, were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? I mean, we're all kind of in this thing together. And yes, there were some glorious exceptions to the rule, but the fact that whole first generation had to wander, wander, die, wander, die, ooh, there were problems. But with whom was he grieved 40 years? And the King James translators softened that verb. The Greek didn't say grieved. The Greek said angry or indignant. So who who provoked God to that righteous indignation? And again, Paul answers, Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? Mm. We noticed that when we studied the Old Testament last year. Bodies are usually referred to in glowing terms by God. The temple of God is your body, Paul himself would say. But how is the body referred to in the wilderness wanderings? Carcasses. And here Paul uses the same word. Whose carcasses fell in the wilderness. Yikes. And then another question. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. That's the key here. What keeps us out of God's rest? What keeps us wandering in the wilderness? What provokes God to righteous indignation? A wicked heart of unbelief. Some lack of faith on our part when Christ is so deserving of our confidence. Why would you fight for me in premortality and fight against me once you come here? How could you have forgotten? I know there's a veil, but there's also a Holy Ghost that helps part it. I know there is forgetfulness, but here I am exhorting you to remember, to consider. To hold fast. I love these initial chapters of the book of Hebrews. We still have three more to go, and in four and five and six, there is so much more incredible exhortation. But can you pause for a moment? Can you sit with these truths? Maybe an intermission in the sermon and get some time to ponder what has Paul taught me about Jesus? What do I know of him who ascended above all and descended below all? Who lifts me to a higher level if I'll simply believe in him? My friends, we cannot afford to let these truths slip. May we pay more earnest heed to them. May we not provoke God. May we hold on to the confidence we once had in him. And remain steadfast and confident to the very end. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, that's exactly what Paul wants us to do. Hold on. Build on everything he's taught to this point And take the next step forward. Remember how chapter 2 began? With a therefore. Remember how chapter 3 began? With a wherefore. This is one long sermon. And while we might need to break it up to savor every sentence... Imagine sitting there in a church somewhere in the ancient Mediterranean and your bishop, maybe it's Bishop Timothy, maybe it's Bishop Titus. They read this sermon to you and it's flowing and it's moving you forward. And the therefores and the wherefores help you see, oh, because of that, ooh, this is what I need to do. And because of that, this is my next step. Well, look at chapter four and how does it begin? Let us therefore, oh, there it is again, keep reading the sermon Because of everything I know to this point, because of ascension and condescension, because of Christ's willingness to treat me as a brother or sister, and not be ashamed by my companionship, let us therefore fear. Huh? You just talked about confidence at the end of chapter 3. Now you're starting with fear? Well, what kind of fear are we talking about? Keep reading. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. What he's alerting us to here is the fear of falling short. We ought to fear that. We ought to worry that I'm, I'm not holding on tight enough. I'm letting it slip. I'm letting my faith drift away. Because if I allow that to happen, then a promise that has been left there, it's right there the blessing is right in front of my face picture Moses coming coming down the mountain the first time with the original tablets with all it's higher law it's right in front of you imagine that first generation getting to the Jordan River when Joshua and Caleb were still young guns and you can cross, you're ready well, are you? And they weren't. And it took another 40 years. And by now Joshua and Caleb are old timers ready to cross the Jordan with a rising generation. The promise has been left to you. I hope you're afraid in a good way. Not over anxious. Not fear as in loss of faith. But an inspired anxiety. Maybe we can call it that. Uh, Jacob did in the Book of Mormon because of faith and great anxiety I knew what God wanted me to do and if we feel a little of that inspired anxiety enough to fear that we might miss out on the promise and it it alerts me to my need to press forward in faith because I don't want to come short of it now the way it's phrased here he doesn't want any of you to seem to come short of it and that's an interesting adjustment Oh, I missed it. Mm, It only looks that way. I sinned and it's too late. I can see why you might feel like that, but that's not the case. You only seem to have fallen short. Continue to exercise faith. Christ felt every temptation so he could succor you through yours. He tasted weakness so he could offer us his strength. There is power here. And so if you feel like you've come short, it only seems that way. Look at it again with the eye of faith. Because as Paul says next, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. So ancient Israel was taught these things just like modern Israel has been. The ancient Moses was given similar sermons to what the modern Paul is giving now. But notice what he says. But the word preached did not profit them, which is shocking. I thought the word was mighty and powerful and it changed things. Well, it does. At least it can if we're open to it. But what was the problem here? The word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Ah, now we see the problem. The word alone cannot save us. But the word mixed with faith can. God offers his word. We offer our faith. That's where we meet in the middle. We believe We don't let it drift off. We hold fast and we believe. Think about every time you've heard the gospel preached or that you've read scripture or you've been to general conference, whatever it is, there are so many sources of the word. The question is, do we mix in our own faith? It's that that gives those words life and meaning and power in us. And unfortunately for ancient Israel, who heard all these same things preached to them they never supplied the requisite faith to bring those words to life those words couldn't be made flesh with them because they didn't add faith in verse 3 for we which have believed so here is faith on their part we which have believed do enter into rest Forget the provocation, we're not provoking them. Forget the wandering, we're beeline it straight for the promised land. So rest is promised us. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, or as the JST clarifies, if they harden their hearts, they shall not enter into my rest. That makes sense. Also, I have sworn, if they will not harden their hearts, they shall enter into my rest. And that makes sense too. And then the clarification that was really helpful. Although the works of God were prepared or finished from the foundation of the world. So from the very beginning, God had promised us victory. He had promised us his son. That's what gave us the confidence to go fight the war in heaven. The confidence to overcome the risk of our agency, right? And so now we come to earth and we're still in that, in that risky business of choosing for ourselves. And yet victory was prepared and finished. The work was done from the start. Now back to King James. For he spake in a certain place. And the certain place is obviously Genesis chapter 1. And the Hebrews are all going to know that. But again, Paul is just kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There's some place in scripture, ah, help me out if you remember, that speaks of the seventh day on this wise. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, so let me quote another one, if they shall enter into my rest. And then the JST adds, if they harden not their hearts, they shall enter into my rest. So all kind of back and forth between King James and JST, and what are we supposed to make of all of this? Think about it along these lines. Christ's work is done. And The rest is what awaits. Now Paul is going to quote Genesis for this and talk about, oh yeah, six days of labor. Then there was a day of rest. So lean into that rest. Know that it's coming. And have confidence that Christ has accomplished his work. If the work of creation was done before his Sabbath day of rest, imagine the work of re-creation in terms of transforming us to be people more like him. His atoning work is done, too. His resurrection has been accomplished. Now, I remember section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, when the Lord says, he explains what he meant by it is finished, where he says, I finished my preparations unto the children of men. So I wonder if Jesus would push back a little and go, oh, actually, my work isn't done. From here on out, I get to take what my work accomplished the perfect empathy it taught me and now apply my my atonement to your every need i'm a, i'm highly motivated to do so because i have perfect empathy but i love the concept of trust that the work is done trust that it's the sabbath day i mean how do you feel when it's just you've barely made it through the week and all of your deadlines and to-do lists and when a Sabbath day can truly be restful, and again, not just naps, but glory, and I can connect to heaven because there's nothing on earth that's pulling me in other directions. It's already been finished. There is such a a, a, a heave of, a sigh of relief, a feeling of absolute just, I'm free. The work is behind me. And for Paul to describe that in terms of the work of our own salvation, it, it's done. Jesus did his work. We now need to believe in him and do anything he asks us to perform that work of reconciliation. There's the wax on, wax off. Okay? But we're not paying him back. We're not earning our salvation. We're just accepting what he's already worked to accomplish. Paul then says in verse 6, Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. So yeah, some people didn't enter, but other people did. It remaineth that some must. The door is still open. We're not all still wandering, wandering, dying in the wilderness. No. He wants us to enter. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, so now he's quoting and dropping a hint where he's getting it, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if we will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. So there's Paul continuing to quote the Psalms. The hymn book. It's church after all. Let's sing another one. And it's all about keeping a soft heart. Because it was the hardened heart that refused entrance. Whereas if you can just be soft enough to believe. The water will part. And you can walk across the Jordan. Into a promised land that awaits your arrival. The work's been done. Then verse 8, for if Jesus had given them rest, and that was all that was said and done, it's like you made it and we're done and there's nothing to worry about from here on out. If that had been the case, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day? But the fact he was talking about some other day, it's like, hmm, is there some better rest still ahead? And the answer to that is yes. I mean, we ain't seen nothing yet. You thought Canaan was a promised land? Oh, there's a far more glorious one that God has been working on and tinkering with ever since creation. Okay, So what's this other day? Paul goes on, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And that's what we are waiting for. That's what's off on the horizon. A rest that is waiting us. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. So just like God has his Sabbath, so do we. We need to be at rest in this. We need to cease from some kind of over-anxious, over-zealousness where my works have to save me. No, take a Sabbath, please. Calm down. It's not your works that are going to save you anyway. It's your belief in the Lord who can bring you rest. That's what makes the difference. And then this odd addition, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So interesting irony there. In amidst all this talk of rest, 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 he mentions labor. Huh? You ruined it for me. Now I'm back to my toxic perfectionism, running faster than I have strength. Then you haven't been paying attention to all my talk of rest and the kind of rest that the Lord is offering the saints. It's a rest from thinking you have to do it all yourself, It's a rest from comparison to other people. It's a rest from the fear that comes of thinking I'm not going to make it. Does that require labor? Well, it's labor to enter into the rest. They still had to walk to get to the promised land. But this was a work to believe, a work to receive, a work to... Put down the dukes when we were fighting God and insisting that, no, I've got to do more. I've got to earn this on my own. It's like, can you please stop? (laughs) Just work to accept my rest. That's the work of reconciliation. It's the work of developing righteous reflexes. But remember, Don san you're not waxing on and waxing off to pay for your karate lessons. This is how you learn karate in the first place. Are you with me on this? There's something beautiful about laboring in a way that isn't so overwhelming. That it's not to pay God back or to prove our worthiness, it's simply to retrain our reflexes so that we can accept all that He's giving us, so that we're ready for a Sabbath of rest that's glorious. In verse 12, Paul says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, or as the JST puts it, between body and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That idea is repeated so many times early on in the Doctrine and Covenants, which makes sense because God is unsheathing his sword again. His word is coming forth, and it is cutting to the chase when it comes to truth that's how quick God's word is quick means alive imagine somebody so quick with the blade but it's also powerful this strong kind of two-edged sword that God is using to to separate things Separate. it's got such a fine blade it can separate light from darkness truth from error body from spirit that's amazing Think about what the Word of God does in helping you see things clearly. No wonder this is the one offensive weapon we get in the armor of God. The sword of the Spirit and the Word. It cuts to the chase in any argument. It separates those who believe from those who don't. It separates our best selves from our worst selves and helps us see things as they really are. In fact, it helps us be seen for what we really are—that's what Paul hints at in the next verse. He says, "Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do." That's a beautiful phrase to describe Christ as the all-knowing, all-seeing eye of God. Oh, he may be the good shepherd and the Lamb of God, but there's no no pulling the wool over his eyes everything is not just open before his eyes but they're they're so exposed that they're stark naked again hebrews jews what are they thinking ooh adam and eve ah yeah they were naked and yet god saw right through them fig leaves <laughs> nice try hiding in the garden oh i know exactly where you are but do you adam and eve let me ask you there's something powerful about recognizing christ's omniscience his all-seeing eye there's no reason to hide i can come out in the open i can repent of my sins there's nothing he doesn't see that lies before me so with his help i know i can overcome all things are you getting a sense of why we can place our trust in him so wholeheartedly In the lectures on faith, by the way, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon teaching the elders of the church, they were told that there are certain things you have to know about God for you to have faith in him. And if any of these attributes or perfections are missing in God, then there goes your faith up in smoke. Because how could you trust a God that is lacking in these particular attributes? There's a beautiful list there, but one of the ones that is mentioned is knowledge. You would have to, God would have to be all-knowing for you to trust Him. Because if He could be surprised by something He didn't see coming, then there goes our hope. Well, no wonder it's such a beautiful thing to realize that all things are naked and open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. So keep doing things with Him. Okay. In verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, And think about how a Jewish audience, the Hebrews, would react to that title. We have a great high priest. In ancient Israel, that was always the mortal intermediary. He was the one that would come and perform the sacrifices and so on. Well, in our day, who is that great high priest? It's Jesus. But seeing that we have him and seeing that he has passed into the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, just in case you missed the metaphor. I'm talking about Christ here. But because he's passed to heaven, he as our great high priest, let us hold fast our profession. And profession is not your occupation. Profession is what you are professing. It's your faith. It's your belief. It's your confidence that you've had from the very beginning. Hold fast to that. Don't ever let it slip. And then one of the most beautiful descriptions I've ever seen For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. There's a lot that we saw back in chapter 2 that we see repeated here in chapter 4. And I'm grateful for the repetition because it's such powerful truth. Here, yes, he was tempted like we are, but he never succumbed to it. He never gave in. He taught that back in chapter 2 also. But here what he's using as his reference point is the mortal high priest that would receive sacrificial offerings, take, for example, take upon himself the sins of the house of Israel, and then lay his sins upon the head of the sacrificial offering, and pass those sins onto it. He could then take that, that lamb without blemish, that ram or that ox, and offer it on the altar so that its sins would go up in smoke right alongside it. That was the role of the great high priest. Well, in Jesus, we have an even greater and higher priest. He is highest on the chain of being, outranking the angels, so definitely outranking the chief religious officer of Israel. But what is he? He's one that Or, I should say, he's not one that cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. He gets it. He understands it. It's everything we talked about back in chapter 2. Because of his condescension, and his compassion, and his empathy, he completely understands what we're made of. And he's not ashamed to call us brethren. No difference between sanctifier and sanctified, as far as he's concerned. It's no, all the same level. I came to do this for you. I came to feel the strength of temptation and overcome it. I came to, to digest death and to know its bitter aftertaste. I came to conquer mortality so I could bring mortality back to divinity with me. I'm not untouchable. In fact, with that phrase, a high priest that cannot be touched, think about the leper we met early on this year in our study. A leper who, by definition, is untouchable, except for Jesus. Who didn't just say, I will, be thou clean, but touched him and then made that promise. And I wonder if the human touch was as healing as the words of Miracle. I'm the one that's contagious, not you. Or to the woman with the issue of blood. She thought Jesus was untouchable because she thought that her touch would contaminate him. And so she sneaks around behind and reaches out and touches just the hem of his garment. There's no way he'll know about that touch. But he did. And he was okay with it. Christ is touchable And best of all, Christ is touched by our weakness. He's moved by our mortal imperfections. He never succumbed to them, but he always lowered himself to the level of those who do, so he could understand us. And as a result, verse 16, which is one of my favorite passages anywhere in Scripture, let us therefore and there's our conjunction again, because of everything you now know about Jesus, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that both of those gifts are offered us there. Mercy as well as grace. We're going to need healthy helpings of both. Infinite amounts, in fact. What's the difference? I've heard it said that justice is when we get what we deserve. So mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. Meanwhile, grace is when we do get what we don't deserve. You see, mercy is, I'm not going to make you suffer for the sins you've committed. But grace, I'm going to help you overcome sins you haven't yet committed. Mercy is pulling weeds. Grace is planting flowers. Grace is enabling power for your present and future. Mercy is looking past your spotted past. Okay? And how do we receive those gifts? Well, he's there offering, but he does want us to come to receive them. That's part of the work we do to enter into his rest. Now, if you think about entering into a place of rest, and you can think about that as in terms of promised land and making it out of Egypt the telestial world, being perfected along the way through the wilderness, terrestrial world, and then being able to enter, cross a a line, a river, a barrier that miraculously opens for you to pass and come in, into a celestial area, the promised land. Now, for those who were in the wilderness, they got to practice that constantly. Because the Lord set up a house, a a portable temple in the wilderness to go wherever the Israelites would go. And actually, vice versa. It would go and then Israel would follow, right? It's the tabernacle. And the tabernacle had an outward court. That's telestial space, separated out out from outer darkness everywhere else. But then the tent itself, the tent of testimony, the tent of witness was there, and it had two rooms. And the first one was terrestrial space. It was called the holy place. But then there was a separation Not a river, but in this case a veil. And you'd have to part that and pass in to the Holy of Holies, which was celestial space. So again, we are growing up in God and moving forward and laboring to enter His rest. Okay, But going from telestial to terrestrial to celestial space. Now, here in this passage, to a Hebrew audience, they know exactly what Paul is talking about. We non-Hebrews, often miss the point. But if we can channel our Old Testament study from last year, then what is he saying here about the throne of grace and coming in uh, unto it. And coming boldly. I love I love the verb come. I love the noun throne of grace. I love the adverb boldly. This the grammar of God is rich right here. Because the throne of grace is the technically it's the lid of the ark of the covenant. And there between the cherubim whose wings are overshadowing all that lies beneath remember the hebrew word to cover means to atone or vice versa they use the word covering for all their atonement language cover your nakedness adam and eve cover broken law there's the lid of the ark of the covenant you have these angel wings covering that right how oft would i have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings but this this lid actually becomes something that Christ himself remains above himself. And it's because that lid becomes his throne. I mean, have you ever seen pictures of of, the ancient world where these servants are burying the throne of the king? They're lifting him up so that his feet don't have to touch the wicked world beneath him. And they'll bear him up. What did the ancient priests do with the Ark of the Covenant? They lifted it, they bore it on their shoulders... Because this was not just a box to contain the law. This was the throne of the king of kings. Christ sat above broken law. He sat above memories of manna. He sat above Aaron's rod and mistakes made in leadership. He was above it all. And so to build a throne room for him, that's what the holy place is. That's the celestial room in the temple. That's the celestial kingdom that we hope to inherit. But that's where he is. And so here's the throne room of the king. There's the, the throne itself, the Ark of the Covenant, and Christ is sitting upon it all. Well, that's where we're invited to come. Boldly? I don't think so. <laughs> Nervously, fearfully, hesitantly. Remember, the Israelites didn't want to climb Sinai. They were scared. And coming into God and because it was God's presence up there, and the thunders, and the light, and the thundering, and lightning, and the pillar of smoke, and the and fire. Well, there was a similar sense in the Holy of Holies. And no wonder only one person could go in one day a year. That's it. The rest of the time, that is a throne room that only the king is worthy of entering. So, what day was that? The day of atonement. Who entered? the high priest. And so all of this was meant to be symbolic of the great high priest atoning for our sins so that we could all enter God's presence. Okay? Now, there is some Jewish tradition that has crept up in the in the centuries since the Old Testament was written. And so, it, because it's just tradition, we don't know if this is actually true in fact. But... The fact that it grows into tradition would suggest there's some understanding behind it. And here's the tradition. There was a fear among ancient Israelites, according to this tradition, that if you enter the presence of God unworthily, then forget about it. You're gone. You will not survive his presence. You'll be consumed by it. The glory of his majesty. Uh, This is where Raiders of the Lost Ark gets its idea. And where the Nazis' faces are melting off because they looked into the Ark of the Covenant unworthily. okay? That's where it gets the idea. And so according to tradition, they would tie a rope around the waist of the high priest. So that as he entered, went through the holy place where other priests are allowed to go. But then who crossed that veil, entered the Holy of Holies, if something were to happen to him in there. No other lesser priest was permitted entrance. And so how are we going to get the body back? Well, we'll tie it with with a rope and drag it back out of the Holy of Holies so we can give it a, a proper burial. Now, again, we don't know if that actually happened literally, but there is evidence in the Old Testament of this fear of entering God's presence. So here in this passage where Paul is inviting us to come, And to come boldly unto the throne of grace, into the holy of holies, part the veil, enter, you're invited. In fact, as we talked about it in our discussion of the crucifixion, the moment Christ died and the veil parted for him to enter God's presence, he made sure the veil parted for all the rest of us too. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain, torn apart from top to bottom. This wasn't us forcing our way into heaven. This was heaven opening itself to earth. This was Christ coming in and leaving the door open behind him. I'm always correcting my kids for doing that. Maybe I should stop. Thank heaven Christ left the door open. Because he wants us to enter. Now we would say, but but, but I'm not the high high priest. And he would say, you don't have to be. I am. I am. I am the greatest of the great high priests. And we would say, but it's not the day of atonement. And he would say, oh, every day is a day of atonement. And so come, and please come boldly. I want you here. There's nothing to fear when you have faith. If you hold fast to that confidence you had at the beginning, then you'll follow me in. Think about the beautiful line we sing in our own hymn book. I stand all amazed. I will come and adore at the mercy seat, he says. Until at the glorified throne, I kneel at his feet. It's all the same place. Here where Paul calls it the throne of grace, that is the mercy seat. And that's another, again, it's a throne. So there's the seat. It's grace, or in this case, mercy. They're both offered us there. And so to come boldly to the throne of grace, to come and kneel and adore at the mercy seat, until we can worship at the throne of God and kneel at his feet, it, that's the same thing. It's, it is his throne. It is his seat. Come. I want you here. All the confidence in the world. I testify of that reality. I am so grateful for his beckoning hand. Let me part the veil for you. Let me part the sea for you. Let me stop the river for you. So you know I want you here. I am grateful for our high priest of good things to come. And what he wants to come is us. Come boldly. Don't hesitate to repent. Don't be fearful that he'll look down on you because of what you've done. He gets it in beautiful, personal ways. That's who he is. And that's who Paul has been introducing us to from the very beginning of this sermon. He'll continue to introduce us to him in all that follows. Turn to chapter 5 and let's keep talking about this great high priest, shall we? The one who invites us to come in with him. No rope around the the waist needed. Actually, maybe it is. But instead of to pull the body out, it's for God to draw the spirit in. He's pulling us. He's coaxing us to come by confirming our faith. So, chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest, and that's what we've been talking about. Every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. Okay, they take the place. It's, it's a beautiful example of proxy and, and vicarious substitution. The high priest takes the place of the people of Israel. The sacrificial animal then takes the place of the high priest. Well, all of these things are pointing forward to Christ, who is the great high priest. Okay? Now, he does this that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's his job. He's the mediator, after all who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity and by reason hereof he ought as for the people so also for himself to offer for sins now beautiful what paul is describing here it's like of course the high priest is going to want to intercede for you he needs somebody to intercede for him he's he's not any more perfect than you are yeah he maybe didn't commit the same sins as you but he has committed sin and so perfect obedience has, that ship has sailed. In fact, that ship has crashed into the rocks. There's, there's no hope for the high priest or for anyone else that he's ministering for. That's okay. That's, that's part of the, the process here. But by assuming everyone else's sins and then passing them on to this sacrificial animal who truly is innocent, the animal didn't do anything wrong. That's why we, pers- we embody that or symbolize it by a lamb without blemish. A firstling of the flock. Something that is completely innocent here. That's the animal, not the offerer. That's the sacrifice, not the sacrificer. If the high priest is totally honest, when he's putting your sins on the animal, he's including his sins as well. Think about that when you go see your bishop when we talk about Christ wants to boldly wants to invite us to boldly come, so do bishops that are worth their salt. Because bishops know of their own imperfection. They know of their own deep dependence on the mercy of God. And so they want to extend that mercy to everybody else. They're not trying to excuse you in hopes they get excused. No, it's not that. But recognizing the Lord's mercy for them they know God's mercy for you. So come boldly to the bishop's office. Okay? The idea here, though, is this sense of the, the high priest understands. He gets it. The high priest has compassion because he does suffer with you. He, the high priest has empathy because he knows what it's like to be human. He is human. Well, if that's the case with the mortal high priest, imagine how much better we have from our high priest of good things to come. That's Jesus well speaking of this honor verse 4 Paul says no man taketh this honor unto himself but he that is called of God as was Aaron and we love that verse it goes along with the fifth article of faith it's, it's we don't assume authority it has to be offered us from one who already has it but I love the context don't just cherry pick this verse and oh that's a great verse on priesthood it's actually a great verse about Jesus Okay, the focus is he is the great high priest and just like we don't take the honor Christ didn't demand it he volunteered when the father asked whom shall I send the father prepared the son, the father called and commissioned the son just like he called Moses, just like he called Aaron they weren't asking for these things but Christ was a willing servant and a willing sacrifice That's what Paul says next. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. So he's going back and echoing the the hymn he sang a little bit earlier. What he's getting at here is the the fact that high priests are, are born, not made. They didn't campaign for the calling. In fact, Moses kind of campaigned against it. Uh, and, and Aaron was, had some issues of his own. But in God's infinite mercy, he called them and commissioned them and polished them until they were worthy of the work. Now, Christ didn't need the polishing. But just like their willingness to accept a role, so did Jesus. He simply volunteered and said, Here am I, send me. He didn't demand it. He didn't campaign for it. But he was chosen of God. And the trust we can place in him as a result. In verse 6, As he saith also in another place. And here Paul's going to quote Psalm 110. He's quoted from that already, but this is a, a key passage from the Old Testament hymn book that he wants to sing another verse from. So, as he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I love that he's referred to a high priest after the order of Aaron. And here he's talking about a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We see two priesthoods side by side here in Hebrews chapter 5. But speaking of this priest, and here we wonder, are you talking about Melchizedek or are you talking about Jesus? Well, let's see what he says and figure it out. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Well, we're going to keep reading in a second, but pause here. Do we have any account of Melchizedek offering up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears? Was he in danger of death? I mean, Abraham was at at, at one point. And Jehovah came through for him. Abraham saw in Melchizedek a superior officer. Remember, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. It's one of the only places we see Melchizedek in the Old Testament. But the fact that Abraham would basically bow before him and offer him the gifts he was trying to give to God. Oh, there's something about Melchizedek. But there's something about Jesus here. Was there a time in the days of his flesh when Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears? Prayers offered to him who was able to save him from death? Him who had ears to hear of this suffering son's fear? I've sometimes said that section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants is one of the few or only places we can see how Jesus felt about Gethsemane and Calvary. And that it took him 1,800 years to finally bring himself to be able to talk about what he went through emotionally and physically and spiritually. Section 19, verse 18 and 19 is where Jesus says, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, that's the top link in the chain of being, right? But it caused me to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father and I partook and finished my preparations under the children of men. Thank you, Father, for not answering those prayers. For enforcing or reinforcing thy will even when I was begging that my will be done but also always remembering that it was God's will that needed to be you understand that, that's again 1800 years after the fact but I wonder well partly I wonder if Psalm 22 that Jesus invoked from the cross was a way of hinting to us all that he was feeling But also what we see here from Paul is this another glimpse into what Jesus endured in the garden and on the cross. Strong crying. The words of my roaring is how the the 22nd Psalm phrases it. Tears. It wasn't just drops of blood that were falling to the ground. Prayers and supplications, a knowledge that God was able to save him from death, if he so chose. This is an incredible passage. It allows us to wake up a little in the shadows of the garden so that we can watch with Jesus for one hour and catch a a peek, just a furtive glance before we're almost forced to look away because of what we're watching. In verse 8, Paul says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You see why the father couldn't answer the son's request? You see why he had to turn away from that strong crying and tears? Yes, I can save you, but I can't if together we hope to save the rest of humanity. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. There was truth behind that mockery at the foot of the cross. But for the Father to teach his son obedience in that way, by the things that he suffered, yes, Jesus was a son. And so as son, he's prince. As prince, he's heir. He's going to receive by divine inheritance all that the Father has. But what does he have to do to get there? Again, chapter 1, ascension. Chapter 2, condescension. And now we're learning atonement in between. And so to understand what Christ, despite the fact he was God's almighty son, he had to learn obedience. Wait a minute. He knew obedience. He never broke a commandment. Well, how about obedience to suffering and obedience to death? Can you obey not just God's rules, but mortality's rules? Which says that the body will ultimately die and it will suffer along the way. Christ had to be obedient even to that. Which means Gethsemane and Calvary were Christ's classroom. And not just as teacher, though he taught us incredible lessons there. He was the student He was the son. He was the suffering servant. And he learned everything he would need to know to be prepared to offer us the blessings of the atonement in our every need. There's the preparations that he finished. Okay, Glory be to the Father for that. Thank you for teaching me in a school of infinitely hard knocks how to help every person around me. Paul then says in verse 11, of whom we have many things to say. And yes, if it's Jesus we're talking about, there's no end. Uh, Remember how John ends? If everything Jesus said or did could be written, there wouldn't be room on earth to contain the books that should be written. Or think about how Alma put it, I cannot say the least part of what I feel. I'm sure Paul (laughs) feels the same. I have so many things to say of Jesus. The problem, he says, is that they're hard to be uttered. Well, Why? Why is it hard to say? If you're so full of these things, just let them out. What makes it so difficult to share the things you know of Jesus? Well, the answer is painful. Paul says, seeing ye are dull of hearing. And dull there in the Greek means sluggish or lazy. And that's what's making it hard on Paul. Because we're tired of hearing the same old message over and over. We're tired of him talking about Jesus. I've had enough for the day. When's class out? We keep looking at our watch and thinking, man, you understand the struggle? What Paul says next is interesting too because he says, for when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as ye have need of milk and not of strong meat. I mean, Paul's scratching his head here going, why? I'm, I'm wondering, not only why are you poor students. But why are you still students when by now you should be the teachers? By now you should be eating meat instead of milk. Remember he brought that analogy up to the Corinthians. And I've got to start with milk because you're not ready for meat. But here it's like, I can see the teeth have grown in. You've grown up and there's nothing more frustrating than seeing a a full grown adult still sucking from a baby bottle. By, By now I would have hoped that you were ready to graduate So you're coming to school, not as student, but as teacher. For me, it was a glorious thing to switch sides of the classroom. As much as I loved learning, there's something glorious about teaching the things that you have learned. And Paul is asking his audience, when are you ready to teach? If you're still having a hard time learning. Guys, these are the first principles of the oracles of God. Think about the law of sacrifice, which we've been talking about to you Hebrews. Okay? that if it's sacrifice is all about faith and repentance okay because if i have a belief that god can forgive me of my sins if i repent of them then let me confess them let me lay these sins upon the heads, head of this animal and then offer it to god in full faith that he accepts that sacrifice in my behalf i mean that's the word have you mixed it with faith as paul said earlier in this sermon if i've mixed the faith into that sacrifice, then this is faith unto repentance, like Amulek said. Those are the first principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or as said here, these are the first principles of the oracles of God. And that's milk we're talking about. But if you still don't get it, if you missed Jesus in centuries worth of animal sacrifice, wow, no wonder we have to go back to the baby bottle. No wonder you're not yet ready to become teachers of this truth. In verse 14, he says, For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. And a better translation of unskillful is inexperienced. And that makes sense. You, you haven't grown up yet. You're not, you're not ready for the meat or solid food, as, as the Greek says. I mean, are you somewhere in the middle? You've graduated from the bottle, but now you're in, in the jars of baby food. We had to mash it all down, stick it through the blender. Are we that inexperienced in the word of righteousness? Maybe so. For he is a babe, Paul says. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And by reason of use, he means by training, experience. That's how we grow up, that's how we mature. We use these things, we exercise ourselves, we hit the gym. We hit the books, we study, we learn, we grow up in God. That's what Paul is asking that we all do. Learn to discern between right and wrong. And as you do, you will be growing teeth and ready to graduate from milk to meat and graduate from student to teacher. That's what I'm hoping for. Chapter 6 then he gives us our final chapter of this week. Don't worry, there's still a second half of Hebrews that is glorious. He's going to build on what we've done this first half. But if we've done justice to these first few chapters, next week will make so much more sense. Are we are we rechanneling our inner Israelite? Are we approaching New Testament text with an Old Testament understanding? If so, let's study this final chapter then and prepare ourselves for more next week. Chapter 6. Verse 1, Therefore, there's that word again, starting every chapter so far, other than the first, with a conjunction. Keep on reading. okay? Keep on preaching. Preach it, brother. Preach it to me, Paul. What am I supposed to do now? Based on what I know about Jesus, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. I was like, wait, wait, we're going to leave those behind? Joseph Smith says, no, absolutely not. The JST adds one word, and it's the word not. So let's reread it. therefore, not leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ hold on to those that's the milk but you can still drink that in your adulthood okay always come back to faith always return to repentance so not leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ let us go on unto perfection or in the greek unto maturity unto full growth or full development let's keep on moving forward not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment, and this will we do if God permit. now it's easy to get confused in that passage, so let's let 's slow down and walk through it. Are we leaving or not leaving these things behind? Well we're not leaving them behind. but are we laying the foundation or not laying the foundation? Oh we're not going to lay the foundation wait wait a minute. I, Why? If it's so important, shouldn't that be our foundation? Well, yeah, but you don't have to lay it again because the foundation still holds. We're not uprooting the whole thing and chucking it and starting over. No, it's a new and everlasting covenant. So the New Testament isn't replacing the old. It's just transcending it. Christ didn't come to destroy. He came to fulfill. And so those old oracles, they still hold. That, I mean, dig out the foundation and you'll see it is still rock solid all the way down to the rock. So, faith? Powerful. Repentance? Hold on to it. Baptism? You better believe it. Laying on of hands? Do you see that the whole first principles and ordinance of the gospel are laid out right there in Hebrews chapter 6? This is the fourth article of faith. And then add to it some foundational doctrines like resurrection and judgment. Because that's what the atonement of Christ accomplishes. Now we have brought in the third article of faith. That is a sure foundation that you can build on. That we all must. So no need to lay again that foundation. Just don't leave it behind. Build on top, but keep it in place. Let that milk prepare you for meat. Transcend it, but include it in all that you do. Going forward. Verse 4 For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, it's impossible for them, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now we need to be careful here. Because we're talking sons of perdition, and I don't want any of you to think that, uh-oh, am I in danger of that kind of condemnation? The answer to that is no, you're not. I mean, if he who sins against the greater light receives the greater condemnation, then flip it. To receive the greatest condemnation, you must have sinned against the greatest light. And none of us have seen that light that clearly. Okay? So, let's go through this passage one phrase by phrase and make sure we're getting it. So, at the beginning, it sounds fairly innocuous. We're talking about people who were once enlightened. Well, that describes most of us, if the Spirit has come to enlighten our, the eyes of our understanding. We've tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, there's room for interpretation. What heavenly gift are we talking about? Have I tasted the fruit of the tree of life? Well, yeah, I felt the goodness of God and his, the, the joy that comes in his love. But is there some greater heavenly gift that I've fully tasted? Well, not yet then. I guess I've had a foretaste of, of a feast to come. Next phrase, they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Well, I received it by the laying on of hands. That was the first or, uh, principles and ordinances of the gospel, right? So that applies to me. Well, okay, but to what degree? Because even the Holy Ghost is on a dimmer switch, not just off and on. Remember that verse in DNC 109, to grow up in God means to receive the fullness of the Holy Ghost. Hmm. Have we received him in, in his fullness yet? And then the next phrase, they've tasted the good word of God. But again, to what degree? Meat, milk version, meat version, where are we? And the powers of the world to come. Hmm. I've had glimpses of that power, but have I fully embraced it yet? Well, we seem to be on a spectrum, right? of how much light and truth have we received and how much are we living by, it's in this second half that we start seeing how serious it is if you're to be a son of perdition. Because when it describes them as those who fall away from all of that, when he says it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance, this is where we have to shift our gears and realize he's talking about sons of perdition now. Because can I have repentance renewed to me even if I've fallen short of prior enlightenment, of course. Even if I have felt the Spirit and tasted the love of God, if I mess up, is it permanently over for me? Absolutely not. Okay. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So this statement that it's impossible to renew people to repentance, it's referring to the kinds of people he described at the end. The kinds of people that would crucify Christ afresh to themselves and put him to an open shame. That's strong language. Imagine if you were there, not just for the crucifixion, but also for the resurrection. You knew full well who Jesus was. And then you said to his face, oh, if I had a chance to crucify you all over again, I'd do it. Even if I were the only audience, if I had to crucify you to myself afresh, You are dead to me, is what they're saying. And I'm the executioner. This is no longer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I know exactly what I'm doing. But I would do it all over again. This is not just denying Christ. This is defying Christ with eyes wide open. That's how Joseph Smith describes sons of perdition. Staring into the sun and denying that it exists. Borrowing Paul's language, it would be desiring to put out that sun, even though you know it's the only source of light and life that there is. It actually helps clarify why they could never be renewed to repentance. Is it because God just says so, I refuse to ever forgive? That doesn't sound like God. Or is it on their part, I refuse to ever repent? That does sound like them. If they knew Christ, they would always know that they can always repent. But if it's deny and defy, it's, I refuse to participate in your atonement, I'd rather crucify you all over again, then no wonder repentance isn't an option. They wouldn't accept it, not that God wouldn't allow it. Okay? We see more of that in section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where Sons of perdition are discussed again. But here in Hebrews chapter 6, best place in the Bible to see things hinted at along those lines. Paul then says in verse 7, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessings from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. In some ways, this is the parable of the sower in a very condensed form. What kind of soil are we anyway? Are we good ground that soaks in the rain when it descends? In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah teaches us the water cycle in a beautiful way and talks about the word of God coming down like rain and it watering the earth, bringing forth plants And then the water returning to the heavens where it can start the process all over again. We're getting something similar here. But again, what kind of soil are we? If we're good ground, then the earth drinketh in the rain. And the rain keeps coming. And the ground keeps soaking it up. Why? Because it keeps producing. It brings forth herbs. Meat for whoever dressed it. It's like that's what the farmer planted. That's what they want to to, to harvest. So thank heavens for the rain. But what about rain that falls by the wayside. We know the seed never germinates there, but think about rain in this case. When the rain falls there, what does it do? Well, it hits this hardened surface and then flows away without penetrating into the soil in order to bring forth life. Okay, Growth. And what's interesting here, on the back of that, com- that comment about sons of perdition, Let's talk about wayside soil. Let's talk about sun-baked earth and hearts that are so hard that even living water can't penetrate. No wonder no fruit is forthcoming. We've got to be better soil. Verse 9, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So even though I'm talking about this, yes, in some ways, you're not the audience that I intend. You're the type that do soak in the rain and bring forth fruit. I'm persuaded. You've convinced me that you're better than what I'm describing. You're the type that every time you come, you bring salvation with you. It's beautiful. Okay, But yes, I need to share this message so you can share it to those that really need to hear it. Be the teachers, not just the students, right? For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward his name in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Have ministered is past. Do minister is present. And these Hebrew saints that Paul is addressing by and large have been doing amazing things. He's persuaded of that. He's convinced. He knows that God will not forget their labor of love and the work of reconciliation they've been engaged in I mean the fruit's right there I can tell your soil is good Okay, the the water just keeps on seeping in and bringing forth so verse 11 we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end you're doing great in the present keep on doing amazing in the future right? you have ministered you do minister how about you will minister and you'll give it your all, full assurance of hope, as diligent as you've ever been, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience endure the promises. Now notice the combination of traits he's bringing up here. Show diligence to the full assurance of hope. A diligent hope? That's interesting. Because as we've said before, sometimes hope can be oh, almost complacent. It'll work out. I've got hope. It's like, yeah, but are you doing anything to help it happen? Is this a diligent hope and a hopeful diligence? Good contraries to prove. And then this other phrase, you have faith and patience until you receive the promise. That's a great combination as well. Sometimes faith is moving us forward, but does it get impatient after a time? And sometimes patience is again kind of this apathetic hope of like, "Eh, it's fine, I'm just going to wait, it'll come, I, I believe. Well, combine the two and make it a patient faith and a faithful patience, and you will hold on, you will move forward. That's the plan. In verse 13, he says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And Abraham is such an incredible example of all of these beautiful attributes, of diligent hope and hopeful diligence, of patient faith and faithful patience, of enduring in patience until the promised blessing finally came. A hundred years before that child of promise finally comes. Oh, Abraham, thank you for both your patience and your faith. You're setting an incredible example to the rest of us that are a little more impatient and a little less faithful. I love also what Paul said. God was trying to swear on something, but nothing was sturdy enough. I mean, when we make promises, like, I promise, I swear, I swear on so-and-so's grave, or "or cross my heart, hope to die, poke a needle in my eye. It's like, whoa, you must be serious. You're willing to go blind if this doesn't come through? Well, what could God possibly swear on? Well, as Paul says, Since there was nothing greater than himself, that's what he swore on. In the scriptures, whenever you see the phrase, as the Lord liveth, that's swearing on the existence of God. And when God says, as I live, he's swearing on his own existence there. And so to Abraham, there's the promise. You can bank on it. Seed as the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven will be yours. Hold on hope no matter how long it takes to be fulfilled. That's good advice for us to follow. So then Paul says, verse 16, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. It's like once you've shaken hands, once you've, you've signed your name on the dotted line, strife is over. We have come to an agreement, and there's nothing to worry about here. Your word is your bond, and I trust in it. Wherefore, God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. That's a beautiful passage. Think about all the language in there about assurance. And promise, an oath, confirmation, immutability, confirmed oath, immutable, impossible to lie. I mean, God's promises are sure, he can be trusted. He swears on his own existence, after all. And here he swears by two immutable things. What might those be? Well, back in verse 13, he mentioned a promise. And in verse 16, he mentioned an oath. Think about this new and everlasting covenant. Think about the oath and promise he's given. We often talk about the oath and covenant of the priesthood. Well, there's two immutable things. God has sworn an oath. He has made a covenant. There's there's no going back on that. He can be fully trusted. And as a result, what can we do? I love the way Paul puts it. We can flee for refuge. Because our covenants with Christ are a refuge. A covert from storm and from rain. That's why the the temple was a tent. It's our refuge. It's where we come in from, from the elements it is, honestly, with God's promises, what do we have? We have strong consolation. Because of God's promises, we have refuge. Because of, of God's promises, we have hope. And that hope is set right before us. The table's set. It's a feast of fat things, wine on the lees, well refined, and just come to the banquet table. I promise you're invited. Come boldly to the throne of grace. I'd love, as we approach the end of, of Hebrews chapter 6, to see what reassurance comes by way of covenant. There's actually, a, I was joking with my BYU students recently, that if you have eyes to see, there are principles throughout Scripture that would surprise you. And I joked with them, I said, you know, I learned a lesson about marriage from Nephi and Zoram. In the fourth chapter of 1 Nephi. And they're like, huh? Nephi and Zoram taught you about marriage? I'm like, yeah. If, they, if the other person runs, chase them down and tackle them. And then they all laugh. I'm like, just kidding, just kidding. Uh, the lesson is something better than that. Because Zoram does run, right? When he first recognized it, like, wait a minute, you're not who I thought you were. You were. And, and think about the symbolism of what's about to happen. Two strangers are about to start a lifelong journey together. In hopes of arriving eventually at some promised land. Sound like marriage? <laughs> I mean, not, not a total stranger, but I didn't know my wife then as well as I do now. And there we were, launching off into this journey through the wilderness. Now, what I love about Nephi and Zoram is the place of covenant. There they are, looking at each other like nervously. But Nephi makes a covenant with Zoram. And says, I promise, and there's all kinds of oath language in in 1 Nephi 4 there. But it says, I promise that if you'll join us, you'll be a free man like unto us in the wilderness. Not our servant, like you were for Laban. Brothers with us. Equal partners in in the whole thing. And the text says that because of Nephi's covenant, Zoram's heart took courage. Huh. Okay. You can be trusted. And then flip it around. Zoram makes a covenant in return. Okay, then I will come and be part of the family. I will join the journey. And I promise. I make an oath. I make a covenant here. And then it says that Nephi's fears did cease concerning him. And when I read that verse, when I was engaged, I was reading the Book of Mormon cover to cover to try to get lessons on marriage. That was one of the first ones of, wow, as we begin our journey together, it's our covenants that will give us confidence. It's because of the promises we've made to each other, and best of all, to God. That our hearts can take courage, and our fears can cease. And my wife and I were ready to move forward, with faith. Okay, the the courage that comes of covenant is really powerful, and that's the sense I get in verse 16 through 18. It's an end of all strife. There's nothing to worry about. Okay, confidence, move forward. And then. He ends this incredible chapter. There's way more ahead, so come back next week for 7 through 13. But how does chapter 6 end? Verse 19 and 20, which hope, since that's what we've gained from all of this, right? We lay hold upon the hope set before us in verse 18. So that verse 19, this hope, we can have as an anchor of the soul. Remember when the boat drifted away? (laughs) Well, my hope in Christ isn't drifting anywhere. It is an anchor that, that ties me to the bedrock himself. Okay? This hope is an anchor of the soul. It's both sure and steadfast. It entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And with that last line, we're reminded of what we studied in chapter 5 and chapter 4, about Christ being our high priest of good things to come, of the one welcoming us, inviting us to come boldly to the throne of grace. This is he who came within the veil. Again, I love the way he phrases it. He's the forerunner and he entered for us. But if he's the forerunner and he's running ahead of us, remember, he left the door wide open. Come. I know you are a little slow compared to me, but come at your pace. I'm, I'm patient. I'll wait for you. I'll hold out hope. It's laid out right there on the table. Actually, it's laid out right there on the throne. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Obtain mercy and grace in time of need. I'll be here for you. That's the hope that is set before you, and you can anchor yourself in it. Okay? It reminds me of the verse in Ether chapter 12. So beautiful. It's verse 4, where Moroni tells us, Wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world. Yea, even a place at the right hand of God. How's that for the throne room? How's that for the holy of holies and the mercy seat and the throne of grace? And this hope, Moroni says, cometh of faith. There's that first principles sent down from the oracles of God. It cometh of faith. It maketh an anchor to the souls of men. Just like Paul said. We are anchored in that hope. And with that anchor and no more fear, what can we now do which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God? That's the whole thing right there, boiled down into a single passage. It's what Paul has been teaching us for the last six chapters. We can glorify a God who deserves our glorification above all, descended below all, we can abound in good works if we'll lay hold on things and never let them slip, if we'll pay the more earnest heed to the words that God has given us, then there is hope in Christ that will allow us to withstand anything that comes our way. That's an anchor, and it will hold. I love Hebrews. Okay, I told you this week was good stuff. And next week will be great stuff as well. But as we wrap up this week's lesson and begin to prepare ourselves for next week's, can I review some of my favorite one-liners from these first six chapters? There's so many. But by way of review, just let these truths sink into the soul. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, made so much better than the angels. God hath ordained thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He took not on him the nature of angels, But he took on him the seed of Abraham. In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. In that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. The word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. The works were finished from the foundation of the world. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Come boldly unto the throne of grace. No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God. He had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Not leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it beloved we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end after he had patiently endured he obtained the promise An oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor to the soul. Within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. I testify that Jesus has entered and that he wants us all to follow. I am so grateful for the testimony of Christ that Paul has left us in this magnificent sermon. I pray that we may never let any of its truth slip, but that we can pay the more earnest heed and hold on to it with both hands and then share it with anyone with ears to hear. I am grateful for Jesus. I am grateful for his Faithfulness for his unbreakable, immutable promises. I'm grateful he cannot lie. It's not in his character. So when he promises us forgiveness, when he gives us a reason for hope, believe him and come when he calls. Come boldly. He's waiting with arms outstretched.